This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. This could be the year of the electric car. At least that's what people are saying in The Economist, Wired, and on CNN. Colorado's governor, too, has strong ambitions for electric vehicles in the state. He wants almost a million on the road by 2030. But according to the Colorado Automobile Dealers Association, right now, not even 1% of cars sold are electric. So what gives? John Volker is the editor of Green Car Reports and an expert on electric vehicles. He joins me by phone from the Chicago Auto Show. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Thanks for having me. Yesterday, I posted a tweet asking people who don't own an electric vehicle, why not? And some of them were about how pricey they are compared to a car that runs on gas. Uh, when is it realistic to think that people who aren't ready to shell out big bucks could actually own an electric vehicle? The answer to that is sometime in the next five years or so. And so Colorado and the governor's plan is really uh, setting the direction for the next decade and more of transportation. Battery costs come down about 7% a year. And so uh, while the initial electric cars were more than double the cost of a comparable vehicle with a gasoline engine, that differential is narrowing. And pretty much the entire industry expects that sometime between 2020 and 2025, the prices will narrow enough where cars that plug in will become a practical alternative for many more buyers. Are there other places in the world where electric cars are, are spreading more quickly right now? Uh, yes. In fact, the world's largest auto market, which is China, um, about twice the size of the U.S. market now, uh, 30 million cars a year or more. China has extremely aggressive plans to become the dominant market for electric cars. China has long had uh, government industrial policy to dominate uh, solar voltaic cells, lithium-ion battery cells, and cars that plug in. And those three tend to interlock and support each other. China next year will start zero-emission vehicle sales requirements modeled on those that uh, have been in place in California since 2012, but far more aggressive. And in September, the auto world really kind of changed because the Chinese government announced that it was assessing in what year it will ban the sale of new vehicles with internal combustion engines. So it seems as maybe as goes China, the rest of the world will follow. Is that what you're saying? Yes, the rest of the world really has to follow. China is not only the largest market, but uh, a place where every global automaker has to have a presence, a profitable presence, in partnership with Chinese companies. And if the Chinese government has said, you are going to sell many more plug-in vehicles soon, and you are eventually going to sell only plug-in vehicles, every automaker in the world has to follow suit. And that will help bring down the cost and uh, accelerate the adoption of electric cars in other trailing markets like North America and Europe. In Colorado and, and other places around the country, there are tax incentives to help bring down that cost. But there's been some pushback with those here in Colorado. A Senate bill being proposed would end Colorado's generous subsidy on electric vehicles. Are other states looking at repealing their incentives as well? There have been uh, some repeals, most notably in Georgia, which had a very generous incentive. Um, a lot of the pushback tends not to be for the more mass-priced cars, 
But this perception that uh, wealthy folks who are buying Teslas starting at $75,000 and going well up into six figures are getting this tax incentive that they wouldn't that wouldn't really change their behavior. They'd still buy the car anyway. Um, but uh, the federal tax credit uh, pl- uh, winds down after a certain number of sales. State credits have a variety of uh, different uh, challenges. And Colorado was actually notable because it had the most generous credit uh, anywhere in the U.S. at a state level in the uh, sort of 2006 to 2009 period where you could get 40% off your Tesla. That got wound up pretty quickly. But there's been a little bit of pushback, not a huge amount. Now, other responses I got on Twitter about why people don't own electric cars is this lack of an all-wheel drive option and and people who said the cars are too small. Uh, The governor is focused on a different concern, however, something called range anxiety, the fear electric vehicles will run out of charge during these long trips without a charging station nearby. Uh, Governor Hickenlooper announced a plan with six other governors in the West to create electric charging corridors along interstate highways. How ambitious is this plan and, and how does it compare to other regions of the U.S.? Um, It's a forward-thinking plan. Um, The Pacific Northwest actually has been doing this for quite some time. Uh, But Tesla, again, Tesla, you talk a lot about Tesla when you talk about electric cars. Um, Tesla really showed the way for a national network of what we call fast charging stations, which are different from the ones that you plug into overnight at home or in a parking structure. Um, it's, it's essentially future-proofing the state and making it easier for those future adopters and current buyers to travel longer distances. Because indeed, um, the first generation of electric cars, sort of 80, 90 miles of range, a lot of people, especially in the winter weather and with the steep uh, hills or mountains that you all have, um, simply couldn't see that car in their lives. Now we've got cars with ranges of more than 200 miles coming at sort of mass prices or close, and those are more practical for day-to-day use, but people still want to go visit grandma, and so these fast-charging stations are what's needed. And really, this plan, which is, which is quite forward-looking, is simply positioning the state for the future that's coming. We all know what a gas station looks like and typically where to find one on the interstate. What about future charging stations? I know Tesla has a type and maybe Nissan has another type. Will will they be arranged like, let's say, a Texaco station? Or do you have to basically know what type of charging your car needs to go to that right charger? Very confusing, it seems. It, it is somewhat confusing. And one of the things that uh, I think is needed is a somewhat more simple system. Although, to be fair, most electric cars have it built into the navigation system. Uh, oh, it just direct you right there based on your car. Exactly. There are a lot of charging stations out there, but people aren't aware of them because they're not signposted. There's not sort of a standard icon. You don't see it on highway signs as frequently as you see gasoline station logos or that gas pump icon. And so most electric car drivers today use one of a few cell phone apps that have not only the locations and will plug into Google Maps and sort of take you there. Um, They also have comments from users saying things like, um, there's not a sign for this, but if you drive past the restaurant, turn right after the handicapped space and go all the way toward the dumpster, you'll find the charging station. 
So how, how does the electric industry overcome that? It's a great question. It's something they're grappling with right now. But there is a plan uh, that was part of the settlement of the Volkswagen diesel scandal, where over 10 years, Volkswagen is going to spend $2 billion in equipping uh, fast charging stations and some local stations uh, across the country. Uh, they're calling it zero emission vehicle infrastructure because there may be some hydrogen stations in there, which is a different topic altogether. But most of it will go toward charging stations to make electric cars more practical. And part of that uh, will be uh, working with all of the players to adopt some standard nomenclature and to get it better known. As people start to get electric cars, your neighbor in the cul-de-sac gets one. other buyers who are more conservative will start to say, okay, that's a possibility. You know, he doesn't have to do anything weird with it. It's a standard vehicle. We will get to one of your earlier points, more all-wheel drive electric cars, more small crossovers, as well as hatchbacks and sedans. And as they start to filter in, um, people will start to understand that they work just like regular cars except you can have a full tank of gas every morning after you plug it in overnight, like your cell phone. John Volker is the editor of Green Car Reports and an expert on electric vehicles. He joined me by phone from the Chicago Auto Show. A $50 million adult funhouse is coming to Denver in the next couple of years. At least that's one way to describe Meow Wolf. The Santa Fe company recently announced it will bring its immersive art installations to Denver. And if you've been to the one in New Mexico, it's kind of hard to explain exactly what that means. Maybe if I were the original Alice in Wonderland and fell through the rabbit hole, maybe that would be something like this. It's like a million different dimensions in one building. Meow Wolf has had a big impact on Santa Fe's economy, but will it do the same for Denver? Journalist Josiah Hesse is here to walk us through it. He wrote a story on Meow Wolf and its potential impact for Vice.com. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Okay, so how would you describe Meow Wolf? Well, I think what they're most known for is um, this immersive art installation they've uh, created in Santa Fe, which is... um, a very popular attraction that, you know, has a very wide audience. Uh, you know, young kids go there, uh, seniors go there. But basically what it is, is um, you go into what looks like a kind of suburban domestic uh, home. And then through your own exploration, you find these little portals, uh, in, say, in the refrigerator or in the washing machine uh, or in cabinets. Uh, it's kind of your own exploration. And then these portals will lead to kind of san- uh, sci-fi, fantasy worlds. Um, there's, uh, I think, a dozen of them. And you kind of just sort of drift uh, from room to room. And if you're interested, there's a storyline to all of it. It's um, I-, I won't get into the whole thing, but there was a scientist who lived in this house who was doing these experiments and these portals uh, opened up. And you can go from uh, bedrooms to the bathroom and find little evidence, little clues um, that illuminate the story. And so this is something called a a DIY space, in in a sense. And and that's coming to Denver. What will this mean for Denver to have a space, this art space called Meow Wolf? 
Well, I think um, it might be a little misleading to say Meow Wolf are DIY. They come out of the DIY culture in that their projects, uh, you know, they were dumpster diving. They were low-income artist kids. But now they're dealing with tens of millions of dollars. Uh, They're a corporation. They're very above ground. Um, But they have the kind of uh, cultural sensibility of um, a DIY culture. And so this project has enormous implications in all sorts of different areas. Um, They're moving into the Sun Valley neighborhood, uh, which is uh, Denver's lowest income area. It's a very Hispanic neighborhood. Um, It, you know, depending on your... Uh, economic politics, uh, it could be good for some people in the neighborhood or there are concerns that it could lead to more um, negative impacts of gentrification, displacement, uh, you know, that we've seen in other areas of the city. And also, it's kind of, uh, or at least the attempt uh, by some of the people at Meow Wolf um, in moving to Denver has kind of been to bridge a gap between the underground DIY community here, uh, who a lot of them who've been displaced uh, from the venues they operate in and often live in, and the city. Uh, it's uh, there's There's been quite a breakdown of communication between those two factions, and uh, Meow Wolf are in a unique position sort of speaking both languages right. that they can kind of at least attempt to broker some sort of uh, diplomacy between those two. And there's been a lot of that tension between the city and these in these underground DIY spaces like you know, Meow Wolf used to be before it became a, a large company, essentially, especially following this deadly art space fire in Oakland, California in 2016. Um these spaces are usually in old warehouses or commercial buildings that artists convert into homes and studios. Uh, your story explains that when Denver started cracking down on these spaces, Meow Wolf actually stepped in to help because they have that common language. So, so what have they been doing exactly here in Denver? Well, yeah, I talked to their CEO, uh, Vince Kadlubek, who said he was very um, impacted by the fire in Oakland. Uh, the go- It was Ghost Ship uh, is the name of the DIY uh, venue there. Because he said it, it looked just like the places they'd operated in in Santa Fe. It was very, um, you know, scrappy materials, uh, bad wiring, uh, a lot of charm, but also uh, not terribly safe. And when he saw that the um, the response to that from the city was to crack down on all the underground venues uh, here in town and you know, put all of these expensive infractions on them that prevented them from operating Shuts or really, yeah, yeah, really even making them homeless uh, in a lot of cases. Um, they created a DIY fund uh, of $100,000. Uh, this was a nationwide uh, operation um, in order to try and get these um, underground warehouse spaces or art venues uh, above board which they've had some mixed success with. I mean, funding isn't the only option or the only uh, obstacle in a lot of these cases. There's a lot of red tape involved uh, in getting everything approved, getting the permits, you know, for uh, the railings, for the sprinklers, for the uh, handicap ramps. And that is um, a challenge that it, it continues on in Denver. But Meow Wolf was at least putting putting some funding out there for, for these for these spaces. Um but what about the concerns that people have about Meow Wolf coming to Denver on the opposite end of the spectrum? Uh, well, it's the moving into Sun Valley neighborhood. Um, Denver has had a real problem with uh, too much development too quickly. And there's a lot of uh, criticism against city leaders like 
Albus Brooks uh, or Mayor Hancock that the president of the uh, of the city council. Right, right. And his district is where a lot of these warehouse uh, spaces are. There's been a lot of accusations that they've sold out the city to developers, that that's their primary concern. And it's had a lot of negative impact on uh, low income residents. Uh, typically, artists fall into the low income category. Um, so, yeah, there's concerns that Meow Wolf are going to exacerbate that problem because this is a $50 million project. You know, it's you, a massive building that they're, they're putting up. Right, right. Uh, and them coming out of the DIY culture where typically, you know, a lot of these projects are done for a few hundred dollars or, you know, maybe a thousand dollars or something like that. And it's, it's uh, you know, reused materials. And this is something that is a major project that they've collaborated with the city on. And uh, there's concerns about, you know, is this going to displace a lot of people? Are they going to be inclusive in their hiring practices? You know, gender, race, uh, orientation. Um, is it going to be accessible for people with disabilities? Because that was one of the uh, criticisms of the um, Meow Wolf location down in Santa Fe, because it's a somewhat of an obstacle course uh, getting through there. So it's difficult if you know someone's in a wheelchair to navigate that space. And, and briefly, if Meow Wolf comes to Denver, how much of a mediator do you think it should be in this discussion between DIY spaces in the city? Um, should be is a is a difficult. Uh, uh, way to frame it because, you know, most uh, developers or any corporation that comes to town, you know, typically don't have these concerns. They're looking at their bottom line. How much money can we make from this project? And with Meow Wolf setting themselves up to be, um, uh, they're, they're trying to be a force of good in the city. You know, they are taking on this responsibility themselves to be mediators between uh, these underground arts communities and the city. So um, I think they have a unique uh, position in that they kind of speak both languages. They can be sort of cultural diplomats uh, because a lot of times the city and the underground arts communities have very different goals and very different ways of viewing uh, what an ideal lifestyle is, what a business is. So uh, someone like Vince Kodlubek can kind of uh, span both of those worlds and know how to um, present incentives to each side. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Denver journalist Josiah Hesse, who recently wrote a piece for Vice on the art company Meow Wolf coming to Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. What started as a vision for a Disney-type musical eventually evolved into this. This is Into the Wilderness, off the debut album from Denver band Lost Walks. Over the length of ten tracks, a gothic-like story unfolds in a remote mountainous area. It's called Wolf, Woman, Man, and it's the brainchild of husband and wife team Andy Thomas and Jen Ganun. You can hear the concept album tonight at The Bakery in Denver. I spoke with Thomas and Jen in 2016. 
Andy and Jen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This sounds more uh, Tim Burton than Disney Princess. Yeah. Uh, Andy, how'd you go from the idea of writing a musical in the style of Disney to Wolf, Woman, Man? Yeah, I mean, we've been thinking a lot about that, and we wonder where the progression happened because... Um, we did want it to be a little bit light-hearted to start, and then it just progressed into this very dark, kind of morbid tale. Um, and we realized that's, you know, different parts of our personality is, you know, we are drawn to these light-hearted, good-natured things, but we also really, we listen to a lot of Nick Cave, and we, we like, we love Tim Burton, of course. So, uh, you know, I think it was at first a kind of decision to have a balance between those two, and then somewhere along the line, it just got really, really dark. <laughs> and Jen, the storyline started to come together after a trip to the Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center last year. What, what was it about that visit? Well, so we went after we started writing the songs, and we wanted to get some more information about wolves. Um, and when we were there, we realized that having our wolf portrayed in this um evil way was not responsible for us anymore. We really wanted to make sure that um, this misunderstood animal was portrayed in the way that we felt was responsible. So he went from being kind of an evil character in our story to more of a hero in the end. And this is a conceptual album. And so there is a story and it has three characters uh, in it. Uh, I want to listen to the first track on the album. It's called Always Been Cold. The smell carries well here from miles the second track. I want right. to yeah. correct myself yeah, no there. Uh, this is a linear story mm-hmm. about a couple deep in the remote mountains somewhere. And, and, and like I said, just three characters, all sung by different vocalists. Uh, Andy, you call this album a cross between Peter and the Wolf and The Shining. <laughs> yeah. What more can you tell me about the story without giving too much of this ending away? Sure, yeah. No, that we thought that was a pretty apt description because it kind of, these, these at least the man himself literally gets cabin fever. You know, he, he starts to think that there's some really drastic measures that need to be taken uh, in response to his wife that he's kind of trapped in this remote region with, and uh, she, she has a child on the way. So he starts to develop very nefarious uh, schemes. Uh, and the wolf, yeah, as we mentioned before, eventually is kind of the protagonist in this tale because he discovers this and he wants you know to make sure that the woman is safe. So he has some plans of the man in his own right, but again, uh, all on behalf of the woman. Lost Walks starts with you two, and uh, there's another member of the band. Who is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the other the other part, the, the, the person who plays the wolf is our friend Damien Merkel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was a large inspiration for the project because we knew when we started to, to write this, we just wanted, we always loved Bad Luck City, uh, Damien and Kelly, another member of our band's old band, um, we just loved the feel that they had. Damien has a very unique voice. So, 
you know, as we were writing this, we knew the project was pretty much contingent on him because we needed his voice for the wolf. No one else can do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and well, the, the, the performance now, the, the album, the, the band is much larger now with a bunch right. of different Denver mm-hmm. musicians. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we've, since uh, the three of us, Damien, Andy, and I were writing it, we then added Kelly, who plays violin, and then we have Trent Nelson, guitar, and David Thomas Bailey, who's playing bass, and then Chad Johnson is our drummer. Um, and then we've also added an entire artistic team to help us with our live shows as well. And this is a new band, but you all have been playing music with other bands for, for years? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I've moved back to Denver in 2003 and have been playing in as many bands as I can since then, you know, and uh, and Jen plays in another band with me called uh, Andy Thomas's Dust Heart, mm-hmm. and Trent and David and Chad and Kelly and Damien have just been around forever, too, so... In a way, it feels like we have kind of our dream team, not just in the band. I mean, they're all wonderful musicians, but also with the artists that are involved with it as well. We're we're getting everyone's opinion on how we can move forward with this whole project, and it's really pretty amazing. Fairy tales and fables have an embedded lesson or some kind of takeaway. Uh, Jen, what might that be in the case of Wolf, Woman, Man? We are hoping to spark the interest in wolves and anyone who hears this watches watches the whole production. We want people to go down to Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center and, and meet the wolves and take the tours and, and educate themselves a little bit more about what's facing wolves today. Um, so the lesson might be that they're wildly misunderstood animals and they deserve our respect and protection. So maybe that's the lesson there. Why the fascination with wolves? Uh we are all animal lovers, for sure. So that's part of it. Um, so when we went down to the sanctuary, we were just trying to get some more inspiration for the music and for the songwriting. But then we realized the the laws that are in place now that are hurting the wolf population and, and just how they're so demonized in our culture. And we're, um, we're, we're just hoping to help the folks who are helping them so much. So the fascination is just that we respect them and hope that they can get the protection that they need. Yeah. And, you know, and as a, when you write, you know, when you write a narrative or you write a tale, you want a very complicated, fascinating lead. And so we kind of thought, you know, the wolf as this tragic misunderstood figure was kind of the classic protagonist. So, um, and if we can shed a little light on kind of what's actually happening, you know, in the world with, with wolves or any animals, you know, that's a bonus. But uh, at its core, we just wanted a really, you know, like I said, complicated figure to lead it. Will this be the one and only album you will release under the name Lost Walks? You know, we've talked about that. Um, we definitely want to make sure that we give this a good run. We want to make sure this album can live on for as long as it can. But we have such a good group of people and we have such an amazing band that I don't think it's out of the question to think that we could kind of, you know, reimagine another tale um, with kind of different characters. I mean, that's that would be a good ultimate goal for us, I think. I want to go out with one more song. This is Sweet Disaster Laloba.
guitarist and singer Andy Thomas and Jen Ganun, who sings and plays the accordion. They are two of the founding members of the Denver band Lost Walks. The album is called Wolf, Woman, Man. You can see them perform at the bakery tonight in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.